My brother James said we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 13, but we will begin reading with verse 10. And so now I think everyone's had a chance to get there. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious and kind Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name and for His sake, we come before you uh, this morning praising you, God, for who you are and praising you uh, for sending your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that in Him we may have uh, eternal life, and not just eternal life, but that we have uh, reconciliation uh, to you, Lord, and that we have forgiveness of sin, and that we have been justified, and that we have righteousness that is not our own, but that belongs to only one who is God. And Lord, we're just so thankful for that. And as we contemplate the the mysteries of the cross and those that have been revealed to us and those yet to be revealed, Lord, we just thank you and and we offer our worship and praise to you for what you have done, Lord. And we just come asking this morning that you would receive our worship and our praise, God, that you would give us joyful hearts, Lord, that you would convict us of sin and righteousness, uh, that we would see ourselves as we have now seen Christ in his perfect righteousness. Lord, let us be found at the foot of the cross this morning, uh, offering our praise and worship, Lord, and, and bringing to you the burden of sin that we know that only Christ can carry. Lord, we just thank you that uh, this cup did not pass and that uh, Christ partook of your full measure of wrath, Lord, that we may see justification and that we may see him in eternity. Lord, and we just ask that you would reveal by uh, the power of your spirit and the truth of your word who Christ is, Lord, that we would be uh, just awestruck with the person and work of Christ that we would marvel so long at him that we would not see the world, Lord, that we wouldn't see the desires of the flesh, but that your hedge of protection would be around us uh, so that we would not do those things that are unrighteous, Lord, and that when we do, we just ask for uh, the cleansing power of the blood that would remove our iniquities, Lord. And we just thank you, and we just ask that if uh, uh, you would strike from our ears anything that would be unbiblical, Lord, and that we'd be reminded only of Christ, and that the truth of the gospel would go forth this morning so powerfully that souls would be uh, saved, Lord, and that lives would be changed, uh, not just temporally, Lord, but spiritually and eternally. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. I'll begin with looking back at verse 10. And what we've seen thus far in the Hebrews is that God is speaking, and He's speaking uh, to those who receive Jesus Christ, and what he is doing is he's speaking only by Jesus Christ. What we have described in the first verses of Hebrews chapter 1 is the monopoly that Christ has on the gospel. The monopoly that Christ has on salvation that God uh, long ago spoke by prophets. He spoke in, spoke in dreams and in visions, but from this point forward he is speaking and he's speaking through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Uh, there are no visions there are no audible voices from heaven. There is Jesus Christ who has gone to the cross. And thus we are seeing Christ from the very first verse of Hebrews. We're seeing Christ in his humanity. We're seeing Christ in his deity. We're seeing Christ in his office as prophet and priest and king. We're seeing Christ in his superiority. 
Christ and His eternality and Christ being one who is not a created being but an eternal being who is greater than the angels who was made for a little while lower than the angels and we're seeing the saving message of the gospel beginning with verse 1 in chapter 2 and we're being reminded to heed this warning, this salvation that we should not neglect for it is the only salvation and as we come to verse 10 we see the truth of Christ bringing many sons to glory it says for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will proclaim your name to the brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I am the children whom God has given me. So what we have last week uh, is a continuation from verse 11 where it says that there are two parties involved there. There are those who are being sanctified, the children of God, the church, and there is Christ, the sanctifier, uh, the one who is uh, procuring for us salvation. And it says for these reasons that are listed from verse 10 forward, Christ is not ashamed to call us, the church, Brethren, last week we we saw where he says, "I will proclaim your name to my brethren." This is the truth that Christ is prophet and priest. He has received the word from God. He is God uh, in the flesh, and because of that, he is proclaiming the good news that he is the Savior. He's proclaiming the righteousness of God. He's proclaiming the truth that God expects perfect righteousness, and because of that, no man can know the Father unless he knows the Son. Therefore, we also see in that that he proclaims the name to the brethren, those who he is sanctifying, those who are of the church, those who are receiving those heart transplants, those to whom the gospel has been made effectual. And then it says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. There again, speaking of the Messiah doing this very thing, in the midst of the congregation, the people of God, he is leading with praise. This is the truth that shows us both the, the reality that Christ is deity, that he is God because he is able to save and he is the one, the only one who is perfect, but also that he is leading man in every way like man, fulfilling all righteousness because he too is giving glory to God and he is praising God in the midst of the congregation. What better prophet and priest do we have than Jesus Christ that he would lead us in all ways in these things? And then again, to, to qualify the statement, he is not ashamed, it says, and again, I will put my trust in him and behold, I am the children whom God has given me. It says, a miraculous study that we have before us today and we continue with this verse 13 it coincides with what has been previously stated as I drew out those points and when we look back to verse 11 we saw that he is not ashamed and uh, it would seem on the outside that one would be so ashamed to have to die for sinful man, to take upon himself a sin that is not his own. Think about how shameful that would be to anyone who has ever had to, to eat crow, anyone who has ever had to, 
to take a punishment that they know that they did not deserve, to take upon themselves uh, any humility, but much less such a humility as the death upon the cross. And this is what Christ has done. And therefore, to, to the unregenerate mind, to the natural man, it would seem as if Christ would be ashamed to call us brother because we are, uh, in an earthly sense, nothing like Christ. We're sinful and He is perfect. Uh, we're selfish and He is loving. We're, uh, we're bitter and He is gracious and giving. We're in every, uh, every respect to the flesh. We're opposite of what Christ was as He had taken upon flesh and lived upon the earth. And He, uh, of course, in culmination of all those things, He is perfect and we are not. Therefore, why would it not be shameful for Christ to call us brethren? And what we know is that He's speaking of these brethren who are defined in verse 10. They are those who are being sanctified, those who are being set apart, those who are being, being made holy by the truth of who He is and what He has done. This revelation that began uh, in the Old Testament, but as we study, it really began from the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 where God was speaking. He was speaking through Christ, through the Son, through the propitiation. And for that reason, He is sanctifying those to whom this truth is made effectual. This is uh, the reality that sinful man is opposed to who Christ is. Sinful man is in need of sanctification. And what we have is a unique, monogenes, one-of-a-kind, only-begotten Son who is Jesus Christ and he is of the nature of man and also uh, the nature of God. This Jesus Christ is defined here as having no shame in declaring those whom are his brethren, those who are of his fold, those sheep of his flock, those that are being referred to as the church, the brothers, the brethren. And they all are described as being from one father. This is a very revealing statement of the sovereignty of God in all things, but most significantly this is a, a statement revealing the sovereignty of God in salvation. For what we know is that without Christ, men are actually from their father the devil. That's what the Bible says, that you are of your father the devil. There must be a, a change. There must be sanctification taking place if we may claim that we are true descendants and not just uh, of the lineage of Abraham, but spiritual descendants looking to the promises of God, looking to the Messiah promised uh, even in the Old Testament of Abraham. Therefore, that is how we know that we can be the brethren. It's the sovereignty of God to reveal himself uh, to us and reveal the truth about Christ. We know without that we're uh, eternally doomed. Rather, we have another reality is that, that if one is to be this brother of Christ, it can't come by lineage, it can't come by blood, nor can it come by the will as we see in uh, John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13. We must receive Him. We must receive Christ. We must be chosen of God as it's described, being from this one Father to receive Jesus Christ. In the light of the marvelous truth that, that Christ has been revealed, we see the divine nature of Christ in salvation, that it can only be given of God. And what we see is that we, we see the, the true human nature of Christ, that he fulfills all righteousness, that he takes man's place, that he is this propitiation, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But it shows us that we must receive by the power of the Spirit the truth of the Word of Christ and He must be indwelt 
uh, in our hearts. He must take up residence. This is not being filled with the Spirit, but this is being indwelt. There's a command to be filled with the Spirit, but there's the reality that every man who knows the truth of Christ and who really is saved, who is a believer of Jesus Christ, he must be indwelt. Every believer is indwelt. We don't always walk filled with the Spirit. And uh, it, it reminds me of... Uh, something that happened to D.L. Moody. He was receiving recommendations, and a pastor stood up and said, he was being nominated, and a pastor said, well, well, you guys talk of Mr. Moody as if he has a monopoly on the Holy Ghost, and they said, we don't believe that at all, but what we do know is that the Holy Ghost has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. And the reality is that he said, yes, we must walk filled with the Spirit, but we are to be reminded because we leak. And that's the truth, that we must be reminded of the cross. We have these limitations of the flesh. And what we can do as man, apart from Christ, is only produce sinful responses unless Christ is leading by this Spirit. So we have Christ defined for us as one who is unashamed to call those who are being sanctified brethren. And we see that as we look back from verse 10 and begin to look forward. We see this bigger picture of what it means to be considered the brother to Christ. Verse 10, we see sons, where it says bringing many sons to glory. And when we look at that, we see this marvelous truth of, of Christ. And it is discerned in the life of a mere mortal man by the power of his spirit, by by a sovereign power bringing man unto salvation. The evidence is, is that we see Christ perfect perfection. We see Christ and his righteousness and it's revealed to fallen man. That is us. What we realize is that we have no righteousness. There is no righteousness of man who is of one distinct nature. But there is righteousness of one who has the distinct nature of both man and God. And that is Christ. This is a perfect um, person who is deity who is human and then we have man on the other hand who is only one thing and that's ever failing imperfect unrighteous iniquitous and this is how that by the grace of god we're saved to realize the truths of jesus christ this receiving of christ whereby we become sons who are grafted in and that's what's being described in verse Sons who are grafted in, receiving the benefits of the only begotten, the only one who is true deity, and we're receiving as we are adopted the righteousness of Christ, inheriting uh, all of these attributes that only belong to Christ. We're even receiving glory that only belongs to Christ. Uh, we're receiving the eternal riches of Christ that are spiritual in nature. And what we have is this glory that can only come from God. And that's what man seeks, right? But oftentimes man only seeks this temporal glory and this temporal satisfaction. But what Christ has to give is infinite in value because it never expires. It never passes away. The value of something is determined by its longevity. And Christ is infinitely valuable because he is infinitely eternal and valuable. We consider that he is not ashamed, as it says. We see this point as it's made in verse 13. It says, I will put my trust in him. Here what we have is a culmination uh, from verses 9 to 12. Excuse me. I 
will put my trust in him. We have this perfect picture being painted of the plan of God for man, a plan that that we can trust in, a plan that we can be certainly hopeful for. We can trust because Christ trusts. And that's what the, the, the text is really saying. Uh, he says, I will put my trust in him. Now, here will come uh, something where many people will take this passage and there'll, there'll be a, a great division from whence this passage has come and from what verse it has come from. Some will say that it is uh, seemingly from Isaiah 8.17 and many will deny that and say that it's uh, from Psalm 18.2 and here's why because what we have in the verse is we have I will put my trust in him and then we have a separation that says and again and that is to signify that there's a separate idea and usually when we see this the, the and again the separation we have a quotation from one text of scripture and then after the and again we usually have a quotation from a separate point of scripture and uh, many will say that uh, this must come instead of from Isaiah chapter 8 it must come from Psalm 18 too and I want to read those to you um, many of your commentators will disagree uh, John Gill says this these words are taken not from Isaiah eight seventeen, where in the Septuagint uh, version is a like phrase for these are not the words of the Messiah in Isaiah eight seventeen, but of the prophet. And besides, the apostle disjoins them with those words and again. But they're cited, he says, instead from Psalm eighteen two, in which the Psalms are many things which have respect to the Messiah. And, in, and his times, the person spoken of is said to be made the head of the heathen to whom an unknown people yield a voluntary submission and the name of God is praised among the Gentiles. What I would submit to you here is that we cannot separate the author of the Psalms from the author of Isaiah. Because the author is not the man who wrote it. He's the penman. The author is the Holy Spirit. The author is God himself. And we would do well to, to remind ourselves of that. But what I really want to do is show you that uh, as many say, well, Isaiah is speaking from his own perspective and this can't be a foreshadow of Christ as he says, I will put my trust in him. I will submit to you that Christ is showing us uh, by his actions as man that we must trust God as he trusts God. Therefore, it is from Isaiah chapter 8. And then somebody says, well, what about Psalm 18 too? It's from there too. The reality is that every scripture speaks of Jesus Christ and that we cannot disconnect one from the other. And it, it, it does not hinder the ability of the text to communicate what it is saying to think that both of these terms come from Isaiah chapter 8, 17. And in fact, it makes wonderful sense. And I hope to be able to relay that to you. And I Pray that the Spirit would reveal the truth. So one camp we have, Isaiah 8, 17, the other, Psalm 18, 2, which is right. I think it's paramount that we remember this verse. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And we do well to remember that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Each verse, each line, each jot, each tittle, this is the God who breathed out both of these texts. The very unchanging God that is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2. So let us consider the statement, I will put my trust in Him. 
This is from the same Greek word, the origin word for faith. I will put my faith in Him. Christ is not ashamed because the brethren come from God's mercy and grace. They come from God's mercy and grace because He's calling them. And then we see they come by God's mercy and grace and by God's will in His good pleasure that He would save some and be glorified. So we have uh, Christians who are now the brethren to Christ for He is not ashamed because this is God's will that He would call them according to His mercy and grace and that He would be magnified and glorified and worshipped in this. And many times we see that Christ... Is, uh, has made known throughout the New Testament, we see it especially in, the, in his earthly ministry before the cross, that he is making known that he is trusting in God, that he's relying upon the plan of God, that he uh, has set aside certain things, and because of that he knows not the hour, and he knows that it's approaching, but he knows this is not his time. He doesn't let them... Uh, lay hands upon him that he's not stoned he leaves because his hour has not yet come he's trusting in God for the perfect time and for his perfect will to be done he came he said not to do his own will but the will of the father who sent him isn't that exactly what trust is coming not to do your own will but the will of the father who sent you knowing that someone else knows better than I do that's what is being spoken of in the Hebrews. That is why Christ even says, I will put my trust in Him. This is the reality that we must trust in God whereas by the flesh we were living and we were devoted to sin and we were trusting in self. We were trusting in self-righteousness. We were trusting in the law. We were trusting in all of those things that were leading us straight to hell. But here is Christ saying there is another way and it's the only other way and it's by the Son and it's by trusting in God. That's what real trust is. Knowing that the limitations of our flesh hinder us and render us incapable of making righteous decisions. That's the reality of the flesh. But on the contrary, if we're spirit-led and if we're spirit-filled, it is not I, but it is Christ who is leading. The Word of God, because of this, must be our authority. The Word must be our leader. For this very same word became flesh according to John chapter 1 and dwelt among us. This is the living God that he might fulfill all righteousness. It's the righteousness that you and I lack. It's the righteousness that we cannot obtain. And therefore he alone serves as this propitiation which I also lack. We're in need of a propitiation. We're in need of a sacrifice. We have nothing to give. In one sense, everything that we have to give, even if all of, all of our possessions were infinitely valuable and we could give them, the problem is that they're not ours. And so therefore still, God would be providing the sacrifice. But what we have is the perfect sacrifice who is Christ, who is the Lamb of God, and He is the Savior of all men. There is no other. And uh, this Greek... Uh, this Greek word that we see here for trust and faith, it's also found in, in two other places that I would like to make mention of. Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, we studied this morning in Sunday school. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. I have trust 
in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in its immediate context, he was speaking to the church. I have trust in you, church. As if, uh, as long as you are in the Lord, that these things will be done appropriately, that your obedience will be offered, your sacrifice is offered uh, in relation to what Christ has done because you love Christ, because you love the church. And this is the reality that we can take to its spiritual conclusion that because of Christ, because of faith in Christ, we can trust in God. Likewise, without, without Christ, we have not the Father. Without the Father, we have not the Son. Therefore, we would have no propitiation. We would have no forgiveness of sin. But this is exactly opposite as to what the, the, the Jews would believe before Christ had come and what they would believe even after, by large. We see uh, faith and trust in Christ because Christ is not only man, but Christ is God. And what we have again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against uh, unto him against that day. This again, this is that same root word for trust and faith, that we can have faith in Christ that he has done these things. He's taken this sin, he's borne the sin, he's paid the debt. Christ is fully righteous. And even there, it's, it's amazing how we see again the reference to shame. How one can be unashamed. I am not ashamed. Not ashamed of the cross. Not ashamed of the Christ. Shame uh, is thrown out the window each time that we see Christ conquering sin. And that's what we see in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 13. So now... Uh, we can understand that Psalm 18.2 could very well be the text cited because it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. But what again about Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17? These are speaking of the same Christ. They're uh, two Two opposite sides of the same coin, that coin being Jesus Christ, the only, the only token of salvation that there is, the only one able to procure salvation. And what we have in 8.17 of Isaiah is, I will wait on the Lord, or trust in the Lord, for he is who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will hope in him. Psalm 18.2 is certainly understood as words of the Messiah. And they can, uh, in one sense, be more easily discerned that way. It's uh, for even a, maybe a less mature Christian, a, a spiritual babe in Christ. We can see how that particular psalm is uh, speaking from the viewpoint of the Messiah. But we would do well uh, to understand that also it is being spoken of in 8.17 of Isaiah. Speaking again of the Father by the Son, but cannot... The same application, the very same application, be applied to this particular portion in Isaiah. While it may appear that it is not Christ speaking of God, we cannot, like I said earlier, divorce this from the text. We cannot divorce the relationship. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Now, I, I may have to have this elsewhere in my notes, but the, the truth is that Isaiah is a prophet, right? He's bringing the word of God. The word that is spoken to him by a heavenly being. And then we have to see, well, how can this be 
a word that is given that is foreshadowing the words of Christ and I will trust in Him. This is why because Isaiah is a prophet and he only served the purpose to show us that Christ is the final prophet. So when Isaiah is saying these things, though it may not seem as he is speaking from the perspective of the Savior, he must be because he represents Jesus pre-incarnate. He is a prophet speaking of God, and God is saying in many times, in many ways, in many portions, sundry times in diverse manners, spake unto the fathers in times past by the prophets. That's what he was doing. He was speaking. Who was he speaking about? John chapter 5, verse 39. Everything is about Jesus Christ. You search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they that testify of me. So he's speaking through the prophet, testifying of Jesus. And then also in the psalm, it is a, a understood to be messianic, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, we must understand Christ is saying these very things. I will put my trust in him. This is the God working everything, and especially salvation. Although it does not appear that way, we must see it that way. He certainly was waiting, this Isaiah, for the day that he himself uh, should see the Christ. He was looking for this. And likewise, uh, when we look to Christ, is Christ too not waiting for God when we read the Scriptures? He certainly was waiting for the day that he himself would be revealed, as Isaiah was waiting He's waiting that for the day that He will be revealed in its ultimate revelation of who He is upon the cross. Even before, though Christ was preaching Himself, He was preaching Himself as sacrifice. He was preaching Himself as Savior. And it seemed to be a mystery. It seemed to be veiled, so to speak. But the disciples didn't even really understand all of what was about to happen. The disciples didn't understand that uh, this that he spoke of would entail the death of the Savior. They didn't understand it in, in, included the cross. Christ is waiting and trusting for the appointed hour. This is what we see in the Gospels. He upholds those who God has appointed to salvation. John chapter 6 shows us this, but I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at that last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at that last day. This is Christ trusting God. Isaiah the prophet is representing the final prophet, priest and king, who is Jesus Christ. He was looking to the promised Messiah. And Christ was looking to the Lord our God in order to execute His plan, His will for salvation, which is the message of Hebrews chapter 2. That we be reminded, that we heed, that we not stray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we ask ourselves, okay, well, the, the text 
that we looked at says, and his face is hidden. How is this so? Well, here's a few examples of that. Job chapter 23, verse 9. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. And again in chapter 13, verse 24. Why do you hide your face and consider me as your enemy? Psalm 44, verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 10.1 Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Psalm 104.29 Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. The truth comes because of this. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Christ is identifying with man in this hidden face so to speak when he says my God my God why hast thou forsaken me it seems as if his face is hidden we cannot forget the helpless why has the wicked man renounced God he says to himself you will never call me to account but you have regarded trouble and grief You see to repay it by your hand. The victim entrusts himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call him to account for his wickedness until none is left to be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will vanish from his land. You have heard, O Lord, the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to vindicate the fathers and oppressed, and the men of the earth may strike terror no more. We have represented in this hiding of his face every man since Adam. That's the truth of what the gospel does. It lets us see who Christ is in his perfect righteousness, and then it gives us a glimpse of who we are in Adam. Who we are as sinful man. And simultaneously, because we can see who we are, we can now see which we would, which what we could not see before knowing Christ. So simultaneously, we see the grace of God in Christ. What is the only thing that has ever caused God's face to be hidden? Sin. The answer is sin. And that's what we have to deal with. That's what the church has to deal with. Iniquity. These treacherous, uh, unrighteous deeds committed against a just and holy God. God isn't being mean by seemfully hiding His face. God is allowing the desires of the heart. But He's sovereign. You don't like that. Natural man doesn't like the idea that God is in control. So, we'll see how we fare without him. His face is hidden. We don't only forget that God has saved us, but we forget that he's the God who causes the trees to produce oxygen. He's the God who causes fruit to be born. He's the God who causes meat to be reproduced. He's the God who causes waters to flow. And we, we need to be reminded in some, in some instances His face will be hidden because we need to be reminded that He upholds all things. He doesn't, this is the good part, He doesn't eternally forsake those who belong to the Son, but He reproves, He admonishes, He chastens those who belong to Him. There is, for man, one of two realities, really. 
being absent of the presence of the Lord eternally, hell, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth, or there's this being reminded by His temporary absence and our sanctification as it teaches us that our eternal need is for Christ and that our eternal need is for salvation and that He has the only unique ability to fulfill this need and to provision in the blood of His only begotten Son salvation for mankind. This is the reality of God's face being hidden. Christ, therefore, has served as a forerunner, a true first among many brethren that he has trusted in the Father. And this is what the text is conveying. He has trusted in the Father in every event, every circumstance. Likewise, because of, uh, because of Christ's nature, we too must trust in his sufficiency and his authority and his ability to reign. Prophet, priest, king, Lord of lords. King of kings. That is what faith is. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. Faith is trusting with a certain hope. Unlike any other hope. Some hopes are just hopeful hopes. This is a certain hope. A hope that we know is true. That Jesus is man. He has fulfilled all righteousness as man. He's been tempted in every way as man, yet he has sinned not. Therefore, as man needs to pay the debt of sin, Christ is this man. He's the only man who is perfect, who is able to pay this debt. And Christ is God. That's why he is perfect. That's why he is righteous. And because of this, this Jesus is man. This Jesus is God. This Jesus is judge. And this Jesus is pardoner. This is the Christ being described. This is truly the model that Christ has set before us. Not that his fate wasn't sealed. It's not that he was hoping and trusting in God because he didn't know what would happen. The reality is that his fate was in fact sealed. It was his plan. He was doing the will of the Father. The, the two are one. We have one triune God. And so this isn't to say that his destiny, so to speak, was yet to be determined. For this plan was written before time began. This is the reality of salvation. The plan of God for Jesus Christ to come and redeem man has existed into eternity past. Yet what, was, what we must see is that Christ is fulfilling all righteousness. Doing things and encountering things in every way that men must encounter, that men must do, yet he does so without sin. In every respect, robed in the flesh of man. This is how Jesus came. Taking upon himself this flesh. What a great high priest. Now, there's no myths about Christ being a priest who had to have something tied around his ankle or his robe. There's myths about other priests. There's stories. They're not biblical. But you don't hear this about Jesus Christ. There was no worry about him being stricken dead as he is priest, for he has died once. He's conquered death, and that's a reality for everyone who believes in him afterwards. This is a unique high priest because he's the only true high priest, and he's the only and last high priest. We are now called to trust Christ 
as he is putting his trust in God, in him. By the same manner, we are to follow Christ. We're to have this same attitude, church, this mind that is in Christ Jesus, that God sustains and the Lord provides. This is what is being said of Christ here. And it says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Again, this certainly comes from Isaiah 8, uh, the very next verse, 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. This is again what we saw in John chapter 6. Those who have been given to Christ by God, here are the children. And now what we must understand is that there is a relationship between the Father and the children. This is a relationship that we have not without Christ. This is an inheritance that we have not without Christ. This is the sovereignty of Christ as we talked about it this morning in the, in the portion uh, in chapter 5 of Galatians about circumcision. The, the child cannot ask to be circumcised, but the father presents him for circumcision. Likewise, Christ as the father presents his children for salvation. He presents to them the truth of Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man, as the only propitiation. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. This is the reality of the adoption. This is the reality of being grafted in. This is the reality of having a righteousness that is not our own because there is no righteousness of our own. The reality is that we are children of God by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. Of God, and we can rely on nothing else. This is the Christ uh, showing us his human nature as he relies and trusts in God during his earthly ministry and before his death. And then after that, this is the reality of Christ, who is the only begotten Son, who, who uh, to us, after he has been imputed our sin, has imputed his righteousness has imputed his inheritance, has imputed his glory and all that belongs to him, that we too can be children of God. That's why it says it the way that it does in John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to him gave him, to them he gave uh, to be sons of God, to be children of God, that believing in him they may have life. And that's what this is saying. We're children of because of the grace and mercy of God, because we're waiting upon the Lord, because there's nothing that we can do. We can go out and we can run headlong and we can trust in self and we can trust in our plans and desires. But Proverbs chapter 16 says, the desires of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The response to the gospel is from the Lord. The response to Christ is from the Lord. We are children because of what Christ has done according to the will of God. Therefore, we can trust in Him because all of this is the culmination of what is being said from verse 10 to the end there. And then what we'll see in weeks to come, that Christ, because of the will of God, because of His good pleasure and for no other reason, is bringing many sons to glory. The reality, the truth of Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, when we look at this passage this morning, we ask, are we the many that have received Him? Do we have the right to become children of God? 
That's a right that belongs only to Christ. So the question really is boiled down to, do we have Christ? If we hear the message of Jesus Christ and we see ourselves as sinners, we only have to look to our response for evidence as if, if we're saved. Is our response disdain? Is it neglect as the Hebrew says? Or is our response repentance and faith? Do we fall before the Lord with our sin and trust that Jesus Christ is this final prophet, priest, and king? That Christ is this propitiation for sin? It's a reality. Hell is a reality. Hell is a destiny. It's the course that was plotted as we come from the womb. But Christ is the ultimate, the only way to heaven. Christ is the only way to the Father. And it's a completely different path. It's a turning from sin. And that's what repentance requires. There is no glory apart from Christ. There is no salvation apart from Christ. We must put our trust in Him if we truly would call ourselves a people who are religious. A people who are of the Father who is in heaven. Lest we be of the Father who is a created being who is not the brother to Jesus Christ. This is a false gospel. We cannot serve man and manna. We cannot serve Christ in the flesh. There's one call and it's to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we just thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, we know that it's powerful. Lord, we pray that this morning that seeds have been planted uh, Lord, we pray that we have received admonishment where necessary, Lord, that we have received a reminder just what Christ has done. And Lord, not only what Christ has done, but that we understand His nature as man, but ultimately as God. There's no other sacrifice where we can't uh, fully comprehend the truths and the wonderful reality of Christ. But Lord, we just ask that You would give us uh, obedience and faith, Lord, that you would give us a spiritual wisdom and discernment to put off the corruptions of the flesh, Lord. And we just ask that uh, not for our own will, Lord, but for your glory and honor, that you would cause us not to uh, be able to sin against you, Lord, that you would keep us from sin and that you would provide your, your heads of protection and uh, your discernment that we would know the true biblical Christ and not follow another Christ. Lord, we trust you, we thank you, we love you, we love your people. And as we go forward today, Lord, we just ask that you would bless the food that we would receive. We ask that you would bless it to nourish these bodies, that they be true bodies of, of living sacrifice for as long as we live, Lord. Make us to exalt the name of Christ and to lift him up in praise and honor and worship and ascribe to him the glory which is due his name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.